calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting how it happened, how they did all gravitate. Because I, right. I, I highlight, in the book, I highlight four women. I could have highlighted 40 others. There was a point when right. I thought I should be calling this lesbians galore, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because there were so many. I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together, see what it's all about. Diking out, diking out, diking out, diking out. Hi, and welcome to Diking Out at Podcast. That's the real reason why Ellen is ending her talk show. I'm Carolyn Bergier. Mm-hmm. I'm Melody Kamali, and today we're diking out with Diana Suhami about lesbian tastemakers. Mm. Tasty. Get ready to be influenced. I like it. (laughs) Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you're looking for more content from us, we do put out an extra episode every week over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash diking out. And on this week's episode, we talk about all sorts of things like what are Larry's and why are they mad at Olivia Wilde? Uh, What's this lesbian nun movie coming out? What have we been up to this last week? What's Melody's real heritage? Why was I in the ER? All that and more, if you can believe it, is waiting over on Patreon for you. So you can sign up for as little as $5 a month over there. That supports the pod. That keeps us going. But here, we're going to talk about something a little different. Melody, what's the gayest thing you did this week? Well, for those who aren't patrons yet, I'll say that I have been down south with Allie's family over the last week. So lots of opportunities to be gay with awkward silence and long looks, pregnant pauses, 
you name it. So out of nowhere, Allie's mom, we're all sitting around listening to country music. Every time I'm down in North Carolina, they make it their personal mission to convert me to a country music fan. It's just like this running bit at this point. And I don't actually hate country music that much, but like the more they try to push it on me, the more I retaliate and it's just all fun, right? So we're sitting and we're listening to country music in the car. We're on our way back to the house one night and Allie's mom out of nowhere just goes you know Allison why can't you just give Melody a pass just for one night a pass yeah now I'm trying to figure out what this means where this came from you know we're listening to a lot of I guess heteronormative country songs about you know settling down starting a family and in fact I'm correct Allie's mom wants us to do that and in the moment, her best idea was, dear daughter, why can't you just give your girlfriend of five years a pass just to sleep with a man for one night? I know you're a lesbian, dear daughter, but your bisexual girlfriend, on the other hand, why can't she have just one night with a man to get impregnated? That's what that meant. Wow, that's a loaded pass. <laughs> so loaded. Allie's was like, mom, what the fuck? We can do artificial insemination. We can adopt. There's so much we can do that doesn't involve the love of my life getting penetrated by a man that I don't. Like, we just had to sit down and explain to Allie's mom the exclusivity of our relationship. And Maybe that- Allie's mom watched season one of The L Word. <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> and saw them go to that art gallery and get that guy on the motorcycle. The idea and felt that That's the old. best way to do it. Yep. It was, yeah. it was wild. Because we were just really in the trenches with her trying to explain our relationship. And we're like, God, well, then what have we been doing for the last five years? Like, she doesn't get it. <laughs> and then, like, I mean, she did get it. Ultimately, at the end of the conversation, we could tell she was being a little tongue-in-cheek. And she's like, well, I'm just trying to speed up the damn process. She just wants yeah. grandchildren. <laughs> oh, man. I, so I gotta say, that's the gayest thing I did this yeah. last week. With my girlfriend, hand-in-hand, hand, trying to explain our relationship for the umpteenth time to her mother. While you're there for a funeral. For a funeral. <laughs> you didn't expect this. It's a roller her coaster. Mom was going to tell you yeah. to get some pee in your V. Yeah. So much happened this last week. Wow. And more in that in the Patreon episode if you're interested. But, you know, I have a pressing issue to get to. Carolyn, what is the gayest thing you did this last week? The gayest thing I did, I know I teased it in our Patreon content preview that I was in the ER, and you'll have to listen on Patreon to learn why, but I did the dumb thing that I always tell myself not to do, and when my doctor there asked what I did for a living, I said I was a podcaster. Oh. Oh, honey. I also freelance copyright. And I always tell myself, just say copywriter. There's never a follow-up question because most of the time people don't know what that is. Most of the time they think it's a legal thing that I'm (laughs) legally copywriting a book or something. And then it shuts it down right away. If I tell someone I'm a podcaster, they'll say, what's the name of the podcast? Mm, To then someone I met moments ago that's in charge of my health and well-being – 
I have to say. Diking out. <laughs> I know that game. She was like, what kind of podcast? I was like, oh, it's just a comedy podcast. We do interviews and stuff. She goes away. I'm there for another six hours getting tests done and stuff. She comes back at the end to wrap up and she's like, by the way, what's the name of your podcast? I'm like, oh, no, here we go. Because I had already gone through it with the nurse who overheard about the podcast. So when the doctor left, the nurse was asking me about it. Oh, and the, the doctor, she said, you know, I have this commute. I just moved now. I'm looking for podcasts to listen to. I don't know where to start. I would love to start with yours. And I'm like, well, it's called Diking Out, and you really don't have to start with it. Yeah, start with and, the daily from I'm like, the New York what Times. are you looking for? What kind of podcast do you want? Do you want the news? Do you like murder? And she's like, I just like to get insights into lives that are different than mine. I'm like, huh, I still think Diking Out is too much. For, like, this is just this. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't make assumptions. Maybe she was bicurious or something. Carolyn, or, you better be careful. She's gay. listening right know. now. She's listening right now. So, oh my God, you're right. You know, I don't know why Tread I assumed lightly. she was straight. Maybe she's not. I guess if I said diking out and she wasn't straight, I'd get like a wink or something or have her say, oh, that sounds like something I would like, you know. But I just find myself regularly discouraging straight people I've just met from listening to the podcast. And I feel like I shouldn't do that, but I'm afraid that I'm going to it'll be too much. It's like I want them to be an ally. I'm afraid if they listen. They'll, they'll get some ideas in their head. I don't know. They'll think they can use the word. Maybe they'll really think that we are the reason that Ellen ended her talk show. Like the, the nuance. You have yeah, to listen for a while back to get to the nuance July, of this. They could think that. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh, I get yeah. the hesitation. Right. So I think gatekeeping our culture is the gayest thing that I've done. Oh, gatekeeping? So hot right now. In the sapphic community. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. I'll count that. Say that. That's the gayest thing you did this week. It is. Wow. Well, Melody, we did mention it. And I think before we get into yeah. this interview, it's worth mentioning it I have again. To. I have to mention, guys, I found out about a death in the family, Allie's beloved Uncle Brian, we were both so close with him. I had just found out the night before this interview, we'd been up all night crying, making travel plans. I was completely drained, which is a shame because I was very much looking forward to this interview. The book is incredible. I've learned so much from this person. I just wasn't fully present for the interview. I tried. I think I got one yes. or two questions out. Like I just, I was on a delay. It was like I was on a... This weird kind of broadcast delay where like everything was coming in five seconds too late and I would just give up and I was just emotionally drained. It was drained. a really hard morning. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, our uh, we don't record in the morning. The, of course, the one podcast, because she is in the UK, we recorded at like 9 a.m. Right. And it was all just grounds for not the best performance on my part. And I do apologize for that. I really do. No, you don't have to apologize. I just want everybody to know, though, that there was a reason for it. Because you were really, we were both so excited to talk to this guest. And we didn't want to reschedule it because we had it scheduled for such a long time. And then this all kind of happened so fast. So it, it's a great interview. 
The guest is so charming. And who's that guest? Well, it is Diana Suhami, who is a celebrated author, all sorts of awards, known for her books about the lives of prominent lesbians in history. She is a Rainbow List national treasure. That sounds like something we should all aspire to. Her latest book, No Modernism Without Lesbians, is out now, and we can't wait to talk about it. So let's get into it. Diana, thank you so much for being here and diking out with us from across the pond, our favorite place. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm still not over the American Revolution. I think we should have just stayed a part of the UK, you know? Yeah. I just love it over That's there. That's what was really keeping Carolyn up at night this last year, especially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The American Revolution. <laughs> well, there have been times when you could say it couldn't be worse. <laughs> right. Um, so when you're with your last president and, or dare I say it, our current one, roll on the next revolution, really. Right. <laughs> well, Diana, before we get into things, we want to ask you, what's the gayest thing you did this week? Well, I think I am down in the in the Cornish countryside at the end of nowhere, the very tip of the, uh, very tip of the country. I think the gayest, and I don't see people, um, I think the gayest thing I did this week was to video uh, the resident woodpecker who's, 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 got, who's got two new, is teaching two woodpecker offspring to be self-respecting woodpeckers. And I did wonder. <laughs> I did wonder about pronouns for woodpeckers, whether it was a he or a she or a they. <laughs> but when it came right. to a bug, I really didn't know whether it was a he or she or a they teaching these young. <laughs> well, ones. that consideration was the gayest <laughs> part. Yes, <laughs> contemplating the right. You don't want to misgender a bird. No. <laughs> I didn't want to offend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Especially when dealing with wood and peckers, you can't make assumptions. True. Tell me more about this woodpecker. <laughs> is, it a, is it a big one? Well, they have sort of, I'm getting quite good on bird life. Um, they, they, they're quite carnivorous, and they, although they will eat nuts and things like that. It, they have red heads and breasts, and they're rather beautiful. And I did think it's interesting the way they teach they teach their young to, to do oh. what they do. How do they teach them? Well, they sort of hop along a bit and then turn around and the other little ones copy. I mean, how do you learn, how do you learn anything? <laughs> right. You just hop along. We have a, a large woodpecker in our yard, one that has like the redhead. There, there are a couple breeds of woodpecker around me, but the, the big one, we're always impressed when we see it hopping about, but I haven't seen any offspring but it's always very exciting it's well, such a cool bird maybe, even though maybe it's, it's a gay maybe noisy. it's a gay woodpecker and it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't do breeding <laughs> possibly possibly we have a very gay property <laughs> yes it used to be owned by lesbians really? years ago we discovered so we figure all the animals on the property must also be I gay well, it's quite an assumption yeah. i hadn't I, ha- I haven't gone too deeply into this and i am going back to london <laughs> next week and actually if there are too many conversations about uh, about woodpeckers maybe it'll be a good thing if i actually see some people <laughs> <laughs> yeah balance <laughs> Well, 
Diana, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got your your start in uh, in becoming an author. You have quite the career in publishing. Uh, yes, well, the latest the latest book I've written, which is called No Modernism Without Lesbians. I, I think it's I think it might be my fourteenth. I started writing books about lesbians about thirty five years ago because I'm old. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like I, I'm 80 actually I like saying that um, I tell people at bus stops I, 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 I tell people at bus stops and boast about it and yeah. <laughs> I'm rather proud of having got that far um, but when I started writing which was my way of coming out in many ways I, really because I wanted a mainstream publisher I didn't use the word lesbian and no public, no mainstream publisher would have published a book with lesbian on the title. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you'd have had to go to the feminist press or the smaller press. And so it's right. quite a sort of um, indication of how times have improved here or in some liberal democracies, that they actually want the word, word on the title, that they, they can see it as a selling point, as a proud thing, you know. And, it, and I felt, although I choose... I, I highlight... Um, for women in the book, and you wouldn't in today's terminology call them all lesbian, I was glad to have the word out there on the title, kind of proud and boasting and and stripped of any kind of embarrassment or apology, you know. Right. And the fact that the publisher wanted it does, see, does to me, indicate that things are moving, have moved along, and haven't they just moved along? And I'm moving almost so fast it's difficult to keep up. I mean, people, <laughs> right. people ask me if I'm she or he or they. Or, and, half, and to tell you the truth, half the time I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the cover um, of the book and the, the fact that it does say uh, lesbians right on the cover because it's great for signaling. You know, we get a lot of people that are like, how do I let people know that I'm gay? How can I be more visibly queer? And it's like, get this get book, this book. <laughs> read it on the subway, take it to a cafe, oh, and then you'll find a girlfriend that oh, that's way. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. The alternative to a T-shirt. And, and also, you don't have that way. You don't have to read it, do you? Right. <laughs> just, just hold it up. I've not thought of that. Or if you, alternatively, if you really want to annoy people and clear the train carriage just for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I do love it, though, that you use the word lesbian as kind of uh, inclusive to whatever the identities of these, however they may have identified themselves, because I feel like over the past decade or so, there was this misconception that the word lesbian was like very exclusive and there was like a lot of gatekeeping around it. Whereas now I think we're pushing for it to be more inclusive and that it's still okay to call a bar a lesbian bar, even though we want people who identify as bisexual, pansexual, trans, whatever, to be able to to go there and feel comfortable while still being able to call it a lesbian bar. I agree, and that's the spirit that I use it in. I mean, I, as a dedication, I do dedicate it to LGBTQIA plus or whatever gets you, and or the, whatever gets you the to quilt the quilt bag. bag. Yes, 
<laughs> quilt bag. That was a that was a new one for for me. Same. I hadn't heard the term quilt bag before, well, in, and I kind of like it better. Do you? Well, I don't mind using all twenty six letters. You know, right? <laughs> um, but there is well, there is a danger to initialism, and you know that you you come in from on top and say you can't use words. And it is in the spirit of inclusivity that I use the word lesbian. I mean, the women that I write yeah. about, they, most of them didn't use the word for themselves. They would talk about their friend. But I do think it's important, right. whatever language you use or whatever initials you use, you try to get to the intention of the person who's speaking. You know? And if they mm-hmm. falter and don't use your language, you don't have to necessarily come in on top and correct them if their intention was benign and inclusive. Right. And although, you know, language is shifting along, good, but I totally agree with you. I would like, I do, and and would like to continue, partly because (laughs) it's really rather difficult to get round all the terms. I mean, quilt bag, (laughs) I forget what. (laughs) Q is queer, U is unisex, I is... Intersex. L is lesbian. Queer, undecided, intersex, undecided. lesbian, trans, uh, bisexual, asexual, I, and then gay or gender queer. I, yes, I wrote it did. down <laughs> because I, I, I really loved it though. How like right up front you did address it, and you address it in a way I think that aligns with a lot with how Melody and I are always talking mm. about labels on this podcast. They're everything and they're nothing mm-hmm. yes. at, at the same time, and that. People get so so caught up in in a label, and for someone who needs that label or wants that label, that's great if that helps you with figuring out who you are. But that at the end of the day, we're individual people, and and you had a statement about how to focus on a specific way of how the ID would have been doing a disservice to these women who are kind of larger than life. I think that's absolutely true, and and you know, in a way, it's it's not what you are, it's how you are what you are, you know. What I really wanted to get to was their achievements, you know. Yes. Um, that's where the celebration is rather than... I mean, one of them, Briar, who was born Winifred Elliman and she was the daughter of the richest man in England and she managed to get her inheritance and used it in a philanthropic way. But she would identify, she felt herself to be a boy born into a girl's body and in today's terms she would be transsexual. But you totally understood how she felt and who she was by the way she expressed it without using today's vernacular. And the important Mm -hmm. thing was what she did with her life. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And with all the women, all the it's set in Paris between the wars, and they all gravitated to Paris. All of them made this huge and wonderful contribution, and f- towards their own, not just their own freedoms, but towards the culture of the time. You know. So that was what I wanted to highlight, rather than the very fact of what their particular way of. Although, because I, I also wanted it to be character driven and to show how they live their right. lives. But labels can be a useful shorthand, but they can also trip you up and corner you and claim you in mm-hmm. a way you don't want to be claimed, don't you think? Exactly. I love that. So going back, you said thir- 35 years you've been writing about lesbians. I have written about other things as well. but <laughs> Yes. 
like murder. Like uh, murder. Well, no, islands, islands I've been, but I mean, there is a similarity, lesbians and islands, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Lonely places. <laughs> And places I want to be. Mm. How did writing about this topic evolve with like your own understanding of your sexuality, which came first? Well, I think it was for all those decades ago. It was for me really a sort of way of coming out to the world. Yes, it, it really was, and of, of of breaking silence. I mean, I grew up. You know, there was there wasn't anything to read about lesbians. When I was growing up, I was born in the nineteen. I was born in nineteen forty. Um, there was, you know, d- disapproval from my family, or they didn't want to hear. So for me, it was really. I, I began this book because the first book it was called Gluck. It was about a society painter called Hannah Gluckstein who dressed in very androgynous clothes and, and was very out and and fell passionately in love with. As, uh, another woman, and I saw a painting by her. She called it the You We picture, and it was of her and her lover's profiles merged, and they yes. looked defiant. And it's an iconic lesbian picture. Anyone would look at anyone who was lesbian would look at it and know what was going on. They stared <laughs> defiantly into the into the distance, you know. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was used on an exhibition just recently in an exhibition of queer art at the Tate Gallery here in London. Then after I'd seen that exhibition, I, I got a letter from a, a publisher saying that they liked my bits of journalism and my book reviews. Did I have a book I wanted to write? So I thought of writing this book on Glark. And that was my way of... Getting in, I, I, ha- I was working at the BBC at the time, I handed in my notice because I got a commission um, to write. And, and then one thing led to another, and I've kept going with other books since that bit of serendipity and that, that, that stroke of good fortune. And which also, for me, was a way of, if you like, saying what I couldn't say because I didn't know my own way of expressing myself so if you like I did it through other people through my writing about um, biographies of lesbians yeah I love that you mentioned that you know there really wasn't much written or anything (laughs) that that you could find that was written uh, about lesbians and I feel like that was true for the most part until recently that it's always been this niche category <laughs> like you really have to hunt mm. to to find writings about lesbians and then now all of a sudden it feels like there's this flurry of interest especially in the media and like tv and film in revisiting the the lives of these historical figures and and artists and writers and telling their story where they're finally not erasing their sexuality. So you have Emily Dickinson, uh, Colette, uh, Anne Lister and Gentleman Jack, Queen Anne and The Favourite. What are your thoughts on all of this? Does it feel like all of a sudden? or Yes, I think people are, you know, there's a sort of, people are coming out of the kindergarten. I mean, the, the book, in this book that I've just written, where what, um, it's set in Paris between the wars. 
And what happened was that because there was censorship in, in the States and in Britain, you know, that, that book, which was one of the only ones that was around when I was growing up, well, it, was only, it wasn't, didn't come away from censorship until 1949, was um, The Well of Loneliness, a terrible, terrible, depressing story. But it was censored as obscene and ba- burned yeah. in the King's Furnace in this country and banned in the States. D.H. Lawrence was banned, you know, Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses, there was censorship. And so you couldn't write, a, you couldn't be, you couldn't write about it, you couldn't write poetry, you couldn't mention the word in, in the early decades of the 20th century and be published. So what, the, what women did, what lesbians, women, gay women did, they got out. They got out and they went to Paris. You know, Gertrude Stein, who's a huge, who's one of the characters I write about, she said it wasn't, right. it wasn't just what Paris gave you. It was all it didn't take away. And you could be who you were in Paris. And they were. You know, they, they met their partners, they contributed. I mean, Sylvia Beach is one of the characters that I write about in this latest book. She started the bookshop um, Shakespeare and Company, an English language bookshop, where writers and artists gravitated towards us. And she single-handedly published Ulysses, which was banned as obscene and wouldn't have seen the light of day if it hadn't been for her. And that's considered a seminal book, seminal modernist novel, the breakaway from 19th, 19th century traditions. And they, sure. they were just totally themselves because they freed themselves from patriarchy, they got out and they formed their own community. And it was very supportive. It was very nice because rents were cheap and food was good. And it was an extraordinary community. And they, they harked back to Sappho and the Greek, her, her community of women in ancient Greece. Sappho figured large in their, in their thinking. And they really did you know, break from patriarchy. And so in many, it, it resonates totally now where there is a, a, a sort of... The peop, women don't have to hide their gender or their sexuality or their sexual orientation. And they're not saying it in an apologetic way, will you accept me, please? They're saying, look, right. look how good I am, you know, look at what, I've, look at what I achieve. And so I call the Bible No Modernism Without Lesbians because it's just not been, it's just not said enough just how influential they are to this whole way of, of breaking from old ways of, of, of seeing and being, the old, the old patriarchal ways, um, into, into freedoms of expression, you know. And it happened, the, the Second World War came down like a shatter and, and stopped it all. But I think that now there's the same feeling, you know, it's not, it's not asking for acceptance, it's saying, look what I can offer, look what I'm doing, look how talented I am, look, do you know? And there's so much evidence of it now, don't you think? Yeah, I think for so long, nobody wanted us to connect the dots. It was like they were afraid that if we connected the dots between freedom from the patriarchy and this great creativity and progress and cultural movements that we would descend into a pit of hell or something like that. So we we talk about these stories of these women individually or 
at least, you know, my exposure to it. So what I love about your book is it it ties it all together and kind of shows how their sexuality factored into their fate and their decisions. You know, they wouldn't have gone to Paris had they been able to write without being censored in the U.S., perhaps, you know. Well, I I think this is true. And I did realize this from having written individual biographies. And I didn't want to write just sort of one thing after another biographies. In each one, I wanted, if you'd like, a different conceptual underpinning. So I wrote about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, and the conceptual underpinning was that, you know, here was a truly happy marriage when so many... They, they, they sort of followed the, the rules of, of the perfect heterosexual marriage, which so many heterosexual people failed to, failed to achieve. And they, they succeeded, so it was the irony that they succeeded in that. With um, another book, Mrs. Keppel and Her Daughter, I wanted to write about hypocrisy because Mrs. Keppel was the lover of the King of England, King Edward VII. Her, his, her daughter, Violet Trefusis, fell in love with Vita Sackville West, was pilloried and banished to, forced into a ma- marriage, to, with a, a loveless marriage and banished to Paris. The Charles of Radcliffe Hall I wanted to write about how her life was a trial as well as her book was censored when it was so anodyne. So, but they were all individual stories, even though I didn't want them, I wanted them to have a, a, to exist in their own right as books. But with this, it was this fact of the work of a community and the fact that they had to get away and that how, if you are gay, lesbian, you, you can't be off the patriarchy. You can't unless you're going to live right. a lie. And so in order to be authentic, of course they had to break away and of course they had to start anew. So when you talk about modernism, which is the break from the past, the shock of the new, you have to accept that gender gender reorientation in societal terms is part of a modernist thing. Do you know? Because how can you be part of the old school? You can't. You can't. So that was, for me, a kind of... It's a sort of coming together of other stories, you know, because people I'd written about before figure again, but within the context of community, of movement, of contribution, of the whole being more than the parts, you know. One of the things I loved reading about in the book was the salons that were held. Can you talk a little bit more about this scene? Because it's so interesting and it makes you wish that you could have been there at that time, right? I think think you're right. It would have been a wonderful wonderful time to to have been in Paris. But Gertrude Stein, she held these Saturday afternoon salons because... Gertrude Stein, when she was really young, in her 20s, she and her, and Picasso and Cezanne and Matisse were unknown. They were just, you know, they were scarcely more than art students. And she bought their works for very little money because she liked them um, and took them home and hung them on the walls of, of of their Paris apartment. And before long, of course, she had a collection of paintings that were beyond price and that she couldn't right. couldn't insure. She did, they didn't even bother to frame them, you know. They'd go home with two Cezannes and a Matisse and, <laughs> and a Picasso, you know. Right, um, very casual, yeah. Casual. They'd have honey cakes and, and tea and then take them all home. And people were so interested in, in these weird paintings and wanted to come and see them. So they started a, they, to, to, to sort of 
organize it and, and contain it, they started having these Saturday afternoon salons where people came to look at these paintings. They were called, well, they're the, the foe of the wild beasts. And, of course, people were shocked because it was so different from 19th century painting, which is re reproduction of what you actually see. And then Natalie Barney, she had her salons, they were called the Hazardous Fridays. She held them on Friday afternoons. And when the word got round that that's where you met lesbians, as well as you, you'd go there and read your poems and talk about your artistic endeavours and pick up someone and, and have had strawberry tarts and cucumber sandwiches. And, and so they became famous. Everybody who was anybody went to Natalie Barney's Friday salons. So it was, I mean, this thing of how do you meet people like, of a like mind, of a like, of like feelings, what do you do about it, you know, I, how do you not be the only one? This was how it resolved. And um, right. Paris did become like a magnet. I mean, you, you heard of it and you heard what was going on and you wanted to join it. It's interesting how it happened, how they did all gravitate. Because I, right. I, I highlight, in the book, I highlight four women. I could have highlighted 40 others. There was a point when right. I thought it should be calling this lesbians galore, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were so many. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You hear about Hemingway and um, Ezra Pound, and I'm thank you <laughs> for talking about the actual lesbians at these Paris salons. Every time I was exposed <laughs> to them in literature classes, we were always just talking about the men yes. there. And, and Gertrude Stein hosted, you know, like it was just an afterthought, at least in um, a lot of yes. the lit classes I took. 
Well, she made their fortunes. I mean, Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, you know, they, they showed mm-hmm. her their manuscripts. She told them how to do better, how to do it better, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it, it was... And then they wrote memoirs where they, and then they fell out with each other because everybody falls out with everybody, you know, and, <laughs> and chastise each other in print. But it is absolutely true. I mean, you know, Joyce, James Joyce's Ulysses, it would not have seen the light of day without Sylvia Beach publishing it. And he, he treated her very badly, Joyce. And when he did get a, um, a mainstream publisher, he took the money and didn't give her any. I mean, there were lesbians who were at the front. I mean, Briar, Winifred Elliman, she started, who was born Winifred Elliman, called herself Briar. She started up contact editions with the money that she'd inherited, um, which published for the first time Hemingway and um, Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. And you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have, um, they wouldn't have managed it without this input from, from lesbians who were themselves Creating. I mean, Brow's partner, H.D., Hilda Doolittle, who had an affair with Ezra Pound and was significantly a better poet. Why don't people know more about her, you know? It's gone on for too long and it needs correcting. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the moral from this is uh, don't do favors for men, ever. No. I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> well, no, I do start with a thing, a quote from Virginia Woolf, where she's inviting Vita Sackville West to go for a walk with her by the river, and she says, throw over your man, and we'll walk together right. in the moonlight by the river. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it's yeah. not a bad thing, just throw over your man, you know, when it comes to... When it comes to the foreground of achievement and input and creativity, it is time to throw over the men, I think, and, let, and let's, let's see what the women have done. The women, and, and le- especially lesbian women have done. And uh, they're not, not because I'm saying there's a sort of creative hierarchy, but because they had to be steps ahead, because they couldn't, they couldn't conform. I agree with that, throw over the men. And, well, part of it, and something I've notice a little bit in my own life is that the the relationships that men have with lesbians are different than the relationships that they have with women who they might sleep with and that the relationship sometimes with, with lesbians is that sometimes they still expect the kind of uh, emotional labor and support that they've grown up thinking that women naturally owe them or that we're this like endless resource for well there needs to be such re-education doesn't there i mean the idea of sex as possession which has blighted blighted women's careers and identity which has come from sex that you are possessed not your body your sexuality your name your money your everything is is part is that idea and getting rid of that idea. It's, men have to relearn it as well, of course. And all these efforts towards it, like not taking the name of the man, what, or even taking what name... How do you name yourself, do you know? Why is your surname your father's name, you know? It's this making invisible, which is the ultimate possession, isn't it? That you, Not just possession, but that you stamp on identity in order to, in order to make women... Part, just an, an accessory, if you like. 
And it's been, well, I don't even need to say it. It's just the ways of changing it and the speed with which. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's very gratifying that, that it's an honourable thing to be lesbian, you know, that I don't have to say, I'm afraid I'm a lesbian, you know, that I don't have to, well, my parents are dead, but, you know, the, it's their problem if they can't hack it, you know. I don't have to say it to anyone. All these coming out stories, which are sort of rocking backwards and forwards with pain, you know, mm-hmm. saying things that people don't want to hear, all that, I just feel totally patient with it now just it, it must be of the past it must be that the this celebration or the celebration's a funny word this realization of what's been achieved has to be at the foreground and what can still be achieved no apologies no asking no asking for acceptance here i come you know <laughs> and, and it's at the root of all the tolerances isn't it of, colour as well, you know, what about the kindergarten? I mean, just finish with it. It it goes on and on. It's interesting how when fascism is is in the air, what do they always pick on? They pick on skin colour, they pick on gender orientation, nationality, you know, all these sort of kindergarten things. One of the things I loved in the book was reading about the relationships between the women and their partners and just how supportive they are, that they support each other's ambitions. Like it's Sylvia, she got the, the help and the support and the encouragement to open a, a bookshop. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She met. It's a rather nice story. She was in, she was in Paris and studying uh, French literature. There was a journal she wanted and she went to the bookshop of Adrienne Monnier who had a who had um, a bookshop in the 6th arrondissement. And she looked through the window and saw her, and then a gust of wind blew, blew Sylvia's hat down the road, and Adrian came out and rescued the hat. And then they went in, and, and love began. Do you know? It was, and you, you know those sort of rather wonderful moments of beginnings, uh, first encounters. And you could feel it, and it's it's a timeless thing. You could just see them both. You could see, and then it was Adrian who helped Sylvia start her bookshop. I mean, Briar, who who had read the poetry of H.D., and then went and she wrote a letter to her and a fan letter and called on her in, in down actually in and in the silly ass down near where I am at the moment and the door opened and she sort of knew do you know there are these wonderful timeless you have to pinch yourself to realize that this is 1918 or 1920 <laughs> oh, it's a hundred years ago and more because it's how it works do you know that sort of yeah. wonderful feeling so there's that that's universal and, be, and, and, and beyond time, you know. So there's this sense that although things must change and do change, I think, I think it's almost like a pendulum swings, you know. As I said, the Second World War came down like a shutter and ended this whole era. But now you feel the pendulum swings back again. But within that swing, the universal things continue. 
women fall in love with each other, men fall in love with each other, men and women fall in love with each other. It goes on. <laughs> and I know we talked about Paris already, but can we go mm. back to Paris? Because we recently, yes. we recently did an episode of this podcast where we did focus on kind of the homophobia and <laughs> racism of Paris. I think we've said enough and we, we haven't celebrated the sapphic history of Paris enough mm. on, the, on the record. Right, Carolyn? Yeah, yeah. Well, what was interesting, I think, about this, that... I think, again, to go back to that quote of Gertrude it wasn't just what Paris gave you, it was all it didn't take away. I mean, the indigenous French liked art and were... They, they existed... The, the women who went there existed as a community within a community. And, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's bigotry in whatever society you, you go into. There wasn't censorship. It, they couldn't censor what they were writing. Um, but it was a community within another co- that was within another country. <coughs> English was the language that was being used. Although um, Natalie Barney wrote in French and Sylvia Beaches spoke fluent French, and it's interesting how places take on an identity at certain times and became the gravitational thing towards them, makes them very attractive, like Berlin was. You know, and, right. and then it wasn't, you know, in, it, because of war, because of politics as well. You know, I mean, we now see sort of wonderful, wonderful cultured places like Tehran or like Athens that then clamp down because of political repression. So, again, the pendulum swings, I think. Reading about all of the different locations in Paris, it made me want to take a, a lesbian historical walking tour of sorts. Have you done that? Have you gone and, and visited I have, these spots I have, in whatever form they are today? I have with the various books that I've been writing. I've gone to see where Gertrude Stein lived, where Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Company still exists. Although right, the, right. It, it's become a rather... It's a it's a much more tourist thing now than yeah. <laughs> when, when when Sylvia Beach was running it. But you know to see where they were, to see where Natalie Barney was. Yes, I have just done that. Walked around and looked. And and Paris is architecturally so beautiful that you can still see right. how it was. It's a it's a good right. thing to do. You know, um, mm-hmm. and you can almost there there still are the cafes and the the scent because. You know, and the bars and the sense of what it was like. You can still recreate it. It is a, it's a nice thing to do, to drop down where they lived, where they met, and then to walk the streets right. of Paris recreating it, yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting to read about this and going back to the salons too, in a year that we've been shut down and not gathering with people. And it makes me wonder what have we lost by not having yeah. these meetups of, of the mind in person because it's so you can't recreate it on, on Zoom. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's an interesting thing. How would any of those characters... I can't see Gertrude Stein zooming. <laughs> I think she would have been most. You never know, she, though. She would have been most impatient with it. It would have had to be Alice B. Toklas who did all the sort of, you know, downloading and plugging in, <laughs> and, and she would have just sat there and, and had it all fixed for her. 
I can't see Natalie Barney. I mean, I included Natalie Barney because she said that her life was a work of art, do you know. Also, she was so, she was so out, do you know. She, she gave courage to us. Yeah, others. talk about her love life a little bit. Well, yes. you know, she, she said people call it unnatural. All I can say is it's always come naturally to me. You know, she had, <laughs> she had a way of saying things that just diffused any kind of um, apology or hesitation. Yes, she held her salons, and, and she said that her life was a work of art and that love was the chief endeavour of her life. And, boy, did she go through them. Yeah, I mean, she... It was... The danger of, I felt writing about it was if you have too many names, it becomes very confusing, you know. She said she once... Right. She once had 18 assignations in one night, you know, yeah. Do you believe that? I don't. But she certainly, she went through, she, she divided her relationships into relationships, liaisons and affairs, you know. And the affairs, Alice B. Toklas rather caustically said she picked up her affairs in the in the toilets of Paris department stores. Do you know whether she did? <laughs> I don't know where she did, but she certainly, she seldom was in a bed alone, Natalie. She had a, a huge appetite. Right. Huge sexual appetite. 18 in, in one night, I think most of us would hope, think like 18 in a lifetime would be a... <laughs> it, it, might, it, might, it might be... Something it, to brag about. Might be, it might, <laughs> might be 15 or might be 12 too many. <laughs> it's just so ex- exhausting. But she... Right. <laughs> she was tough. I mean, I couldn't... I didn't really... I couldn't approve of Natalie because although she was sort of loyal to her main relationship, there was always someone who was sort of biting their pillow in the small hours of the night in <laughs> grief that they'd been loved and left, you know. So she <laughs> she did cause a lot of pain to quite vulnerable young women, I think. So she was... Uh, Shane? The, the Shane, yeah. Yes. The Shane of her time. Well, you know, <laughs> Dolly Wilde was one of them who really, you know, was troubled. and That's Oscar Wilde's niece, Oscar Wilde floats through in their thinking and their and their respect. They all respected him. But and Dolly Wilde, who looked like Oscar Wilde, she fell in love with Natalie Barney and and they had an affair but it was for 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 um for Dolly Wilde it was all important and for, for Natalie it wasn't. When you're reading about it, it can begin to feel a bit ruthless when it's encapsulated. Right. An immense amount of research went into this book and I want to know, what were some of your favourite discoveries along the way? What, what were the anecdotes you came across that really delighted you? I don't know if I can, if I can pull those up without thinking about it. I think that what I what really did delight me was that I realised when I was writing it you know you think you've got a book that you're going to write and it's going in a certain direction and then the book takes over if you like you know and almost goes its own way but I realised I realised that there was more to it than I knew would be there do you know that the I know this isn't directly answering your question. It's because I'm a little bit flummoxed about how to answer it directly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
what, what really did impress me was that this added up to more than I knew that I had. This, this, elision, this, putting, this elision of these women, putting them side by side. Just that it showed up how broad the term lesbian can be or how broad the, the idea is of same, same loving, same sex love, you know. How broad it is and that you see it in, in a sort of very real sense. That was what, that was what I felt. Um, how can I be more direct? What did I like? Mm-hmm. I think I liked the sayings of Gertrude Stein when she says, um, <laughs> it's, um, it's hard work being a genius. You have to sit around so much doing nothing, you know. <laughs> um, and then I liked the way she said, I liked the thing she'd say, 20th century literature is Gertrude Stein. You know, it's her, her ridiculous emphatic <laughs> boasting that almost seemed humble because it was so awful. <laughs> or she'd say, think of, think of the Bible, think of Shakespeare and think of me, you know. <laughs> it's quite good fun. Is she your favourite lesbian? Gertrude. <laughs> Is she my favourite? I mean, they look, in a way, they look kind of strange. They're wonderfully photogenic, even while looking really quite sort of... I had a horror when young of looking sort of... of not... of, of having to look a certain way if I was lesbian, you know? That, that, that there would be a look that I... of... of, of that I didn't want or... I don't feel it now, but, you know, this sort of horror when you're trying to find your own identity. They, were just, they didn't mind what they looked like. They really didn't. Um, was, was Gertrude my favourite lesbian? I like the, the way she, she wrote completely um, unreadable, incomprehensible prose which flummoxed everybody, but was utterly down-to-earth in her daily life, you know, full of sort of common sense, common sense and wisdom. Yet she wrote this, this what seemed to be nonsense, you know. Um, But what she was doing was challenging what, what words meant. I think a lot about these women and and how they lived their lives and they, as you mentioned, they may not have referred to themselves as as lesbians or their partners. They would call their their friends, but it's kind of like this open secret and it feels like it's still like that today when it comes to people who are famous, that they live a life with a woman, like anybody who knows them knows that they're gay. But in the public eye, it's like unless you come out and announce it on the cover of a magazine or something, you're still deemed closeted. What did the closet look like back then? Well, dangerous, of course, because because of censorship, you know. I mean, if what you write is not going to be published because... You know, um, I mean, uh, Radcliffe Hall's courage, if you like, when she wrote this book, The Well of Loneliness, was that she did change pronouns. I mean, the only sexy thing that happens is she says um, she kissed her on the lips. She kissed her full on the lips. Well, you know, she'd actually said it, whereas 
others would be very circumlocutory and, and write about what they felt in a, in a... Well, Virginia Woolf did it in a very literary way. Orlando, which was about Vita Sackville-West, was written, was published in 1928, which was Virginia Woolf writing about her love affair with Vita Sackville-West. That passed the censors because it was so literary. Radcliffe mm. Hall's book, also published in 1928, was censored just because she did use pronouns in a very specific way. So I think people should be allowed to express themselves in whatever way they want, you know. I don't think it's up to other people to come in from on top and say, this is how you must behave, this is what you must do, these are the words you must use, this is how you must express yourself, because... It's a personal way of... I do think that pretending to be something other than you are is always dangerous and sick and unfortunate. But to express yourself using your own voice, that's important, isn't it? Is a little it? bit, yeah. <laughs> Not to, you know... I do hate it, the coming in, which I think a lot of the initialism and labelling can do, can't it? Oh, you can't say that. I mean, right. I get ticked off by people who say this, that... You shouldn't be using that word. I mean, if people want to call themselves they, that's fine. It takes time to... Th- I mean, for me, of a different generation, it takes time for me, just as I'm not... I haven't got a gene for Zooming and using all the technological mm-hmm. stuff. I haven't got a gene for quilt bagging very readily, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be helped. Into, in, helped into the quilt bag. It seems like you're doing pretty well with it. And, and honestly, it, it moves fast for all of us, I think, regardless <laughs> yeah. of... Does I it? think anybody who's over the age of, what, 28 at this point is, is trying to keep up. <laughs> it's a relief to hear you say it because it makes you nervous and you half expect to be pounced on with anything you say, you know. Right, and, right. And if we yeah. do sort of stutter and stumble our way towards self-expression, well, you know, it's, it's not a, that's not a crime, is it? I know, it, it is difficult. I mean, the one, the one that I really, my, you know, puzzle over is the intolerance towards trans people. You can find lesbians who are very intolerant of trans people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it... It, it, it's that that seems to me horribly intolerant, you know, because if right. you, you know, I've just read the um, the memoir of um, of Jan Morris, you know, um, and you, it's exactly the same. Briar says exactly the same thing. This sense that they, for a trans person, that they have been born into the wrong body, is so intense, and it can happen so early, and is so abiding and unalterable and not to not to be and so if you if you're convinced you are a it takes empathy to to under, to 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 go into that feeling what must it be like because it's not at all like being lesbian say i mean you you right. that's that you your desire is towards women and your your whole feelings are towards women but to be, feel that you are in that it, to, to not empathise with that. I, I, I hate one identifying as one thing and then picking on another, on another way right. of being, and and yes, and being intolerant of it. You know, 
Right. It, it's like they can't see that it's the same arguments that were at one point used against That's right. them. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's that, right. That, that they're using toward That's right. That's other right. people. That's yeah. Right. That's right. It's a disappointment, I think. Because right. at the heart of all these things is to love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart, as some poet said. You know? <laughs> Do you know? It's being your authentic self and being allowed to live your life as who you are yes. and that who you are to some extent isn't a choice it's not like you woke up one day and decided to be trans or a lesbian or uh, whatever and it's benign you know it's not that you want to go out with a meat meat cleaver and kill everybody who isn't the same as you but to have gone through a process of struggling to find identity and then to come down hard on someone else who's going through a struggle to find identity but in a different manner just seems to me you know that that isn't it isn't it isn't acceptable no going back to the book and the research that went into it how do you go about undertaking that where do you start where do you end when do you know enough is enough mm. Yeah, those are such interesting questions, I think. I have a, this sort of adage, if in doubt, out. I think if things are dull, leave them out. And if they're boring, leave them out. Because you have to be conscious. You know, there's a, there's some researchers, they, want, they find something, they don't want to, they, they're like hoarders, they don't want to leave anything out. But I think if you're not keeping to a theme, then leave it out, because think of, think of your poor reader. For me, a lot of the work... I wonder, there's an evolution, a pragmatic evolution as well. I had wanted to write a biography of Briar, who is one of the characters that I highlight in this. It's very hard to, and this is an obstacle that really is hard to overcome, relating up to things we've said earlier, about all the women who aren't, the lesbian women, gender, queer women who aren't known. Publishers don't want to give advances or commission books about people they don't know. You know, I mean, you can get any old, loads of books about, I don't know, Winston Churchill or... Uh, right. <laughs> but if you haven't, so when I said I'd like to do a biography of Briar, people said who? They hadn't heard of her. They wouldn't be able to sell the copies. So that's a pragmatic reason for including her in a different context. I was also helped because I'd written about some of them before, so I knew a lot about them all these decades of, of research. I think it's always a good idea to, I use this word, a conceptual underpinning, to have a, to have a concept of what you want your book to be about, rather one damn thing after another. I like to start with a concept and then to fit things into that, and if they don't fit in, to sort of to save them for another day. I would describe these women as being the tastemakers of a movement. Do you think that lesbians today are still at the forefront of being tastemakers? I do, actually. I do. I mean, I can't give you, a, I can't give you an inventory or a summary or a, or a list of them all, but you look at filmmakers, at, at all the good, the good work that's being done, you know. The two are inseparable because it, rather than concentrating on wanting social acceptance and social validation, I do think it's quite good to think, look, I'm 12 paces in front. I'm not taking any of that stuff that all the myths of, of societal convention. I've, I've left those. So that puts you into a clear field. And 
then I'm not saying that there's some inborn talent in lesbians, but you are if you have I'm saying that. Well, if you have got if you have got a talent, if you have got a talent, then you're in a clearer field, I think. Right. Go forward with it. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I th- I think that sums it up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so much of it, I think, is just the disregard for the the patriarchy and not feeling confined by that and not doing things for the purpose of pleasing men. I think mm. p- puts you on a on a different mm. level. I mean, but what I I think what I like about the women in this, rather than staying home and throwing stones through the windows of these ludicrous men who are not publishers saying that what they're writing is obscene. They get the hell out. And I do think getting out is really quite a good thing if you can't function within the ethos that you'll find yourself in. You know, get out if you can. (laughs) I mean, and then there's, of course, a lot of people, a lot of women, men who are trapped. Um... But if you can get away from the downward pull of negativity, then it's a good thing to do. Reading your book, there were so many literary references and ones that, I mean, I'm, I would not describe myself as being well-read, but it made me want to read some of the, the pieces mentioned. Um, so for, for me and for our other listeners, after reading your book, of course, what are some of your recommendations of literature that we really, if you identify as queer, should really dive into? Um, do you, like, do well, I have to read The Well of Loneliness? You, you, well, skim through it. <laughs> but, yes, look at it because it. I mean, no, don't. Not unless you want to depress yourself. Um, I think <laughs> Juna Barnes is is really. She's a. She wrote. She she read. What's another interesting thing that they all do is to incorporate each other in fiction. So Juna Barnes wrote this book Nightwood, which was about her love of love affair with Thelma Wood, and it was really rather difficult and fraught. So that's worth reading. She wrote a book called The Lady's Almanac, which is about Natalie Barney and quite a spoof on her. So that's one that's quite interesting. Violet Trefusis wrote about her love affair with Vita Sackville-West and they wrote a book about their love affair called Challenge. There's loads, you know, if you want to get into how they were all in code writing about each other, there's plenty to go for, if that's your sort of thing. But hey, begin with mine. I want be- it to be my Begin thing. with my book, of yes. course. Yes, for <laughs> sure. It was so fascinating to read. And, you know, I thought that coming out as a young age that it made me like this uh, this expert lesbian and the older I get the more I realize I have no idea about the, the long line of women before me that made it so I could come out mm-hmm. when I was 17 and even realize or so that I could make a podcast called Diking Out so <laughs> I, I have my homework set out for me but it was so great I mean especially both Melody and I love Paris. Half my family lives in in France, so that even made it uh, more of a joy to yeah. <laughs> to go through and well, learn about these women in this special place. Well, you see, you're, you're carrying on the good work, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Diana, where can people get your book? And are you uh, on social media? Do you, do you want people to follow you? Well, I've, 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 tell us what you want. Uh, we'll do it. I've got a I've got a Twitter thing thingy, but I'm, I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at putting things on it. You know, same here. I think you, sh- you should do photos of what you have for breakfast, shouldn't you? And I should put the wood. I'll put the woodpecker on it if. <laughs> Yes, yeah. <laughs> we want to see this woodpecker. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, and I, I, I'm, I'm supposed. To, I have got a Facebook account, but the last entry might have been some time ago. <laughs> a neglected well, account. No, no modernism without lesbians. It's out now. Yes, correct? in the states. Okay. Yes, it yes. was out last um, year in, in in the UK. So it, it's out now in the States. Support your local bookshop if you can or get it wherever you can and dive into it. You'll enjoy it. Diana, anything else you want to leave our, our listeners with? No, just thank, thank you for talking to me across the pond. You know, Thank you. Thank you for talking to us. Too bad Diana couldn't stick around to give advice because I feel like she knows it all. A well of knowledge. A wealth oh, of yes. knowledge? She is a well full of, we- of wealth of knowledge. How about that? <laughs> a wawa of knowledge. She is like a full wawa store of knowledge. She's got so yes. much. She's got it in back stock. But instead you have to settle for us. So here we go. We'll take a stab at it. Okay, guys, we've got a listener question this week as we tend to. Let's get into it. My ex and I see each other pretty much every day, and I'm still in love with her. We cut things off because she needed time to figure out how to love herself before she can show me love. I respect that, but it's just so hard to see her all the time and not be with her. But it's also so hard to not see her. What do I do? You live in a self-made prison of emotional torture. <laughs> That's what it sounds like you're doing. That's, yeah. What are you doing? The gayest <laughs> thing you've said all week. What do you do? Stop seeing her. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure you don't need to socialize so frequently around her. Yeah. Let it breathe. Give it some space. This is a recipe for disaster. So many of us have been through it. Yeah. It almost never turns out well. No. And if you get back together, it will just the baggage is accumulating. And that baggage is full of resentment. And to unpack it all is going to be a lot of work. So it's better to completely separate. And then maybe one day... If it's meant to be, you'll reunite. And I tell everybody that, and I feel like nobody wants to listen, and no nobody want, wants no. to do that. It's not that no one wants to listen. No one wants to hear that. It's really tough. Let her maybe have these feelings for you. Like, remove yourself. Yeah. Right? My ex and I see each other pretty much every day. Why? Why you do that? It doesn't have to be that way. And saying it's hard not to see her, yeah, duh. Like, breakups are hard. I should be nicer. No, we're being such assholes. I mean, listen, we've had a really tough week, and we're going to give it to you straight. I've been watching a lot of Housewives. Okay, give us the old Bethany Frankel. 
I'm feeling inspired to tell it to you how it is. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard. And when you do the easy things, that makes it harder for you in the long run. It makes everything worse. Stop seeing her. Also, a red flag, we cut things off because she needed time to figure out how to love herself before she can show me love. Hmm. Do you really believe that it was a we decision? (laughs) Right. Yeah. This person. I've been there too. I run away, run away, run away. And uh, don't look back. And if she races out in front of you one day, then you can look forward at her. But but (laughs) run and don't look back. Right. Let her see if she is pining after you after this. I mean, you guys haven't even separated yet fully. Right. And honestly, if you really care about her figuring out how to love herself, then stop being around her. If, if you're breaking up so that she can do this by you being around, you are preventing yeah. the work from happening. Impeding the goal. Yeah. So it's completely pointless. All you are doing is making yourself and each other feel more pain than is necessary. So rip off the Band-Aid. Yeah, you guys. I feel like I've been so stern with the past few questions. I'm like, look, this is how it is. And I think it is a housewife. So uh, that means it's Melody's fault. Listeners, if you think I've been a real bitch. Oh, yeah. Few- it's my fault. Well, then it's I'm Melody's definitely not going to help by chiming in with my like depressing monotone. I'm so sorry. I don't have the inflection to finesse, but like, I agree with everything Carolyn said. And you really need to put that actual distance and space between you. Cause it doesn't seem like you've done the full breakup yet. Is she really your ex? Like you really need to not see each other or speak to each other. I'm a big advocate of that. Right. <laughs> I love space. Yes. I'm not seeing it here. There's so many other people out there, too. I know how we get. I know my how my first like, really toxic. <laughs> oh, so, oh, your first toxic. No, I want to hear about this. Uh, in my first like toxic relationship that I had that spanned years, the reason why it was a toxic relationship was that whenever we broke up, we still talked to each other all the time and nothing healed. And it was to and it confused everything. And then it made us feel like we should get back together when we should not have gotten back together and it was just a cycle of of toxic breaking up and getting back together until I hated her until I felt like I hated her and I lost any nice feeling toward her and I didn't care about her anymore and after that I was like I will never let it get to that point again you're probably not gonna love her journey Which would translate to you not loving her as much. Like, it's probably better for you to remember things as they were and just kind of move on and let her go through the motions. It's not going to be lovable on your end, (laughs) watching from afar. So just create that respectful space, right? Yes. Yep. Marie Kondo it. (laughs) Thank the relationship for the joy that it sparked and then give it away. Guess what? Drop it off. So many things can spark joy. Give it a little charge. Some have battery requirements, but you can also go to Early to Bed, a Chicago-based store that has primo glass dildos and I'm sure vibrators. And what was the term you had just used, Carolyn, that I prompted this whole tangent? that I'm Marie, uh, sparking joy. Yes. And there you will find other things to spark your joy while you move on emotionally. Yes. And that's okay to see those things every day.
Yeah, multiple times uh, a day. Are you a messy you hauler? Do you have a question for us? Send it to dykingout at gmail.com. Do you want me to tell it to you how it is? If you want me to give you BS fluff that makes you feel good, just add that as a note to the question and I won't be so harsh. Just become one of my close friends. That's how I'll tell it to you. But, you know, podcast listeners, I'll tell it to you straight and real. Let me know you're a tender queer before I make you cry. <laughs> Sometimes I picture the listener getting really upset. <laughs> like they weren't ready for it. Oh, no. I mean, this is such a just, you know. This happened. This is this a is universal question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Universal. We've all been there. We relate. And we know what to do. And let's forge ahead on your own with some safe distance and space. A great thing that you can do to forge ahead is follow us at Diking Out on social media. Definitely. We are still on the stereo app, but doing it a little bit less as our lives have experienced some upheaval recently. Mm-hmm. You can follow me at TGI Carolyn and see what my hair is up to. You can follow me at Melody Kamali and see what my hair is up to. I think it's a due time I post this cut. Yes. Let's do it. We should post it on the same day. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Thank you so much for diking out with us this week, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.